Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 16, and it's The Shooter and the Shots, part two. This episode today focuses on the storytell around James Tagg. Tagg was the only other person in Dealey Plaza that day to be directly injured as a result of the shots that were fired. He's an important witness in a number of ways. It is likely that his injuries were the result of a stray bullet that came from the assassin. And that stray bullet will provide yet another complication for the single bullet theory. This is an important prerequisite, and the single bullet theory will be fully covered in episode 17. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 16. James Tagg wasn't standing all that close to the actual assassination that day. But he is, perhaps, one of the most important witnesses to find his way to Dealey Plaza. Tagg was a salesman at the Cedar Springs Dodge dealership in Dallas. And that day, at lunchtime, he got into his car on his way to a lunch date with a lady that would eventually become his wife. Tagg hadn't planned on watching the president's parade, and it was pure coincidence that his drive into town by car placed him right there at the right spot on Commerce Street to call an audible, so to speak. As luck would have it, he was on Commerce Street, a one-way street that heads east. As Tagg began to approach Dealey Plaza, he was in the left lane just as he approached the triple underpass, and several cars were stopped in front of him, causing Tagg to slow down and eventually to stop himself. The crowds were still gathered, and he guessed that the president's motorcade would be going by shortly, and so he decided to stop and park the car. Cars were already parked in the street in front of him. Tagg parked the car with its front end now nudging out from underneath the triple underpass. In that layout that is Dealey Plaza, Elm Street gently curves and eventually converges with Main Street and Commerce Street, right at the triple underpass. The railroad tracks above were the reason for the underpass below, and it was all an important part of the landscape of Dealey Plaza. That's where Tag was. What a spot, Tag thought. He would get to view the motorcade as it was coming up Elm Street, and then, in a short moment, would get to see the president close up, right at the underpass, almost be able to touch the limousine. Tag's timing couldn't have been better. He found a good spot next to the underpass abutment, and it would be just about a minute before the president's car would make its way into Dealey Plaza. And then, in just a short moment after that, it would head down Elm Street. Sure enough, the motorcade made its turn onto Elm, and suddenly there was a sound. And at first, Tag thought it was a firecracker, like so many other people thought at that moment. It certainly didn't sound like a rifle shot to Tag. He would later tell the Warren Commission it was more of a loud, cannon-like sound. Tag was a former military man, and he had served in the Air Force, so he likely knew what gunfire sounded like. 
This is an important statement by Tag in that he had formed a clear thought right at the time of the assassination about the sound of that shot. From his vantage point, to him, it really did not sound like a rifle. Then, a second shot occurred, and a third in rapid succession. After the third shot occurred, his sense of danger caught up with him, and he attempted to find cover, ducking behind what he called the post, but what was likely the abutment. Before Tay could completely process what was happening, the president's limousine was racing down Elm Street and flying right past him, rapidly, already in transit and away from the danger area, and on the way to Parkland Hospital. A motorcycle policeman who had been stationed there at the triple underpass walked up to Tag and asked what had happened. Still unsure, Tag answered back with a simple, I don't know. Tag knew something was very wrong, but was far enough away from all of the action that he hadn't seen anything in close-up detail. Before he knew it, his attention drew to the area ahead of him, now known as the Grassy Knoll. There, he saw a motorcycle policeman pull up and dismount and start heading up the hill. Tag began walking toward the activity near the knoll, and soon he reached the spot where the policeman had laid down the motorcycle. Tag could see that people were stunned, and by that time, the motorcycle policeman, who was later identified as Clyde Haygood, had come back down the knoll. There was a man standing in the vicinity who was unknown to Tag at the time as well, and that person would later be identified as likely to be Charles Brem, who was one of the closest witnesses to the shooting. Mr. Brem was there with his young son. The man seemed very excited. He was repeating a horrific comment, if true. He was saying that it seemed like the president's head had just exploded. Patrolman Haygood had come back down the knoll by now and was standing close to Tag. Tag heard the patrolman say, Well, I saw something fly off in the street. About this time, Deputy Sheriff Buddy Walters appeared on the scene and appeared to be looking for evidence of a shot in the grass. Tag asked him such, saying something like, Are you looking to see where some bullets have struck? Walters answered back with a yes. This stirred a moment of consciousness for Tag, and he then responded back saying, Well, you know, I recall something stinging me on the face while I was standing down there. Tag realized he must have gotten struck on his face by something in the middle of all of this. Walters then looked at Tag and said, Yes, you have blood there on your cheek. And then Tag reached right up, and sure enough, there was a couple of drops of blood. Walters asked Tag where he had been standing, and Tag pointed in that general direction over close to the triple underpass. The two men then headed back toward where Tag had been standing when the shots were fired and began inspecting the general vicinity. About 15 feet away from where Tag had been standing, Buddy Walters said, Look, here, on the curb. And there was a mark, quite obviously a bullet mark, and it was very fresh. They turned around and looked back at where the president had been, trying to figure out where possibly the shots could have come from. To Buddy Walters, it seemed obvious that the direction of the scrape indicated that the bullet had come from the direction of either the depository or the Dow Tex building. And after looking at the scrape, he said to another deputy, that looks as if the shot was probably from the depository. 
James Tague would be the only other person in Dealey Plaza that day to suffer injuries as a result of the shooting. That is, the only other person besides the president and the governor. Let's fast forward to 1964, some six months after the assassination, and we again run into our good friend. You know him well from earlier episodes. The Warren Commission attorney, Wesley Liebler. And Liebler would have the responsibility of taking Mr. Tagg's Warren Commission testimony. In that session, Tagg would lay out the particulars of where he was and where exactly the spot on the curb was where the bullet hit, and also then where Tagg thought the shots potentially came from. That marked map would become Commission Exhibit 354. Those things were the more mundane aspects of the interrogation. It was other things said that day that were somewhat more interesting in history. The spot that Deputy Sheriff Buddy Walters noticed where the shot had grazed the curb was about 12 to 15 feet east or to the right of where Tag was originally standing. It was closer down the street to both the depository and the knoll and on the south curb of Main Street. Keep in mind that Tag was basically right there at the triple underpass where the three roads converge. Tag was fairly sure that he had been struck by something after the first shot. That was certainly in retrospect. It was never determined whether he was struck by a bullet fragment or a portion of concrete that was blasted away from the curb when the shot hit. When his testimony under oath was provided to Wesley Liebler, Liebler asked him which bullet, in his opinion, would have made the mark. Tag wasn't sure, but he guessed it was either the second or the third shot, and he couldn't say definitely which one. Liebler probed more and asked if he had heard any more shots after he felt himself get hit in the face. Tag answered that yes, he had. That line of questioning and answer led Tag to reconsider and assert that it was probably the second shot that hit him because he was confident that he had heard the third shot afterwards. Tag also reaffirmed that he heard three shots and three shots only, and he knew exactly what time it was because he looked up and saw that big Hertz clock on top of the depository building, and it was exactly 12.29 on the clock. The idea that it was the second shot that missed is somewhat of a problem in a three-shot scenario when you line it up on a three-shot timeline with the Zapruder timestamps. We'll further address the discussion of this timing issue when we get to the single bullet theory in detail in the next episode. There are some interesting exchanges with Liebler that follow in his sworn testimony that conspiracy theorists could have jumped on but didn't. Given their penchant to find oddities in the written record and exploit them, I'm somewhat surprised. Let me go through the ones that are more prominent to me. At one point in the questioning, Liebler pivoted and said, Now, I understand that you went back there subsequently and took some movies of the area. Isn't that right? Tag, perhaps a bit startled, said, Pardon me? Liebler then again said, I understand you went back subsequently and took pictures of the area. Tag then answered yes about a month ago. And then Tag followed up and said, I didn't know anybody knew that. This exchange was now 
likely getting a tad uncomfortable for Liebler, too. He had just made a comment that implied, perhaps, somebody had been watching Tag. Or at least had been watching the plaza for those who might have come back afterward. It's not that far-fetched to believe that perhaps the FBI or the Secret Service or even the Dallas Police or the Dallas Sheriff's Office had folks watching that area for some time after the assassination perhaps with the intent that they might see someone or something relevant to the case, or even happenstance of someone seeing Tag there and relaying the story to Liebler before the interrogation. All of that is the altruistic view of it. The conspiracy view of it would be that somebody was following Tag. Liebler rather deftly untangled himself from this awkward conversation by then showing Tag a picture the picture was known as the Baker Exhibit Number 1, a somewhat odd interjection for that moment of testimony, and asked Tag if he had taken that picture. Clearly, he hadn't, or at least Tag said, not to his knowledge. Liebler then said, in point of fact, that the picture was taken by another individual and that he had confused the picture taken by somebody else with the picture he thought Tag had taken. End of story. And, just like that, Wesley Liebler had slipped out of the pickle that he had just made for himself. A conveniently odd excuse for why he asked Tag about a picture that Liebler himself could not have had foreknowledge of unless somebody had been monitoring Tag. Maybe it was simply a small mistake by Liebler and perhaps perfectly innocent, but maybe not. As a side note, this was one more example of where the verbatim transcripts of the Warren Commission were occasionally very telling and not very complimentary to the Warren Commission attorneys as interrogators. And what happened next is still even more odd. Tag went on to further answer Liebler about the picture-taking saying that he and his wife had planned a trip to go to Indianapolis, which was where Tag's parents lived, and he wanted to take some pictures of the area to show them. It was in the latter part of May. Liebler then asked, did you look at the curb at that time to see if the mark was still there? Tag answered yes, and then Liebler asked him whether the mark was still there. Tag answered back saying no, that he could not tell. This was somewhat of a remarkable question and an even more remarkable answer. The bullet had left a scrape estimated to be about three-quarters of an inch long, a half-inch wide, and one-eighth of an inch deep. At that moment, Liebler just stopped questioning Tag altogether on the topic. Miraculously, the scrape on the curb was now indistinguishable. Tag couldn't find it. Likely, that spot should have been identifiable still after a relatively short period of time since the assassination had occurred less than six months before this testimony took place. This was clearly an odd circumstance. It begged for the next question on why that would be the case, but Liebler never went there and Tag never offered. Liebler instead pivoting away to another topic. Clearly, it would have been nothing but a source of controversy if Liebler had pursued it. Apparently, later, the authorities would identify a spot 
presumably the spot, and actually cut a portion of the curb out and sent it to Washington, where it would undergo spectrographic analysis review. The section in question was removed from the curb, as I understand it, on August 5, 1964, a few months later. Why it took so long to exhume as evidence that portion of the curb, a piece of evidence with this level of importance, is uh, simply another matter and another fact in the case that is stranger than fiction. The same curb sample was later reviewed again during the House Select Committee on Assassinations Review, which happened in the 1970s. But there was a conclusion at that time that most of the metal fragments along the area of the bullet scrape had been removed from the sample during the original FBI review and, therefore, there was insufficient remaining traces of fragment that were left on the curb by the time the HSCA attempted to perform their own analysis. Unfortunately, as a result of that, there was nothing in the way of new evidence or conclusions that came out of the HSCA review of the curb. This test would have taken trace samples and connected them to the ammunition used in the gun and even perhaps identified them as merely fragments from the other two bullets, fragments of which were already found in the limousine. This was definitely possible, but the test was never able to be duplicated. There was one more somewhat confusing exchange that takes place between Liebler and Tag about the exact location of the mark in terms of where the scrape was on the curb. They ended by agreeing that the bullet had scraped the round top edge of the curb. A whole lot of conversation on a simple point, kind of like what you would see on court TV, you know, kind of like watching paint dry. Finally, after a laborious exchange, a marked photo would become Commission Exhibit 354. Liebler asked if Tag had an idea where the shots had come from, and Tag immediately said yes. I thought they were coming from my left. Liebler knew that that answer needed to be clarified. A person standing where Tag was, at just out in front of the triple underpass, would be looking eastward down Elm Street. Looking to the left could have been interpreted as either the picket fence or somewhere in that direction, or even the school book depository for that matter, because both of those locations were on the left side of Elm Street, or rather the north side of Elm Street from that vantage point. Liebler asked again, to your left or toward the back? Obviously, the inference toward the back was a reference to the depository. Liebler already was nibbling, but he said it that way anyway, as if to start with a simple clarifying question. But he didn't stop there. He went on to add, of course, now we have other evidence that would indicate that the shots did come from the Texas School Book Depository. But see if we can disregard that and determine just what you heard when the shots were fired in the first place. <laughs> wow, how subtle uh, or not subtle is that for a leading question from the good counselor? Of course, there was no one there to object to a leading question. Wesley Liebler 
of all the attorneys on the staff should have been drop kicked clean out of there that day. Tag responded simply and truthfully. He said, to recall everything is almost impossible. And he had just an impression as he recalled it. It was his first impression that the shots came from over by the... And then he went on to describe the spot itself as whatever you call the monument or whatever it was. For those of us using the modern JFK assassination vernacular, Tag was referring generally over where the picket fence and the grassy knoll area is located in front of the railroad yard. More probing then ensued, and Mr. Liebler then asked a confirming question. So you think they came from the area between number 7 and 5, back in the area marked with a big C on Commission Exhibit 354. Mr. Tag answered, that was right. That was the warm-up question, now that he had Tag relinquishing the fact that the shots were at least in the direction of the school book depository. Like Oscar Robertson on the basketball court, he wasn't satisfied with a shot from the foul line. Liebler wanted a layup. Liebler then drilled down one more time, saying behind the concrete monument here between number five and seven toward the general area of the spot marked with a C? Mr. Tag again answered yes. At least at this point, Tag was now, for just a moment, one more important witness that had stated very clearly for the record where he initially thought the shots had come from, and he thought they came from that open area around the grassy knoll and perhaps behind the picket fence somewhere. But the questioning by Liebler didn't stop there. He had the narrative in hand that the government needed, and he would not be done with Mr. Tag until he got what he wanted. He continued and took a moment to ask Tag about possible shots near the triple underpass. Tag indicated that he had seen no evidence that anybody fired a shot from the area on the railroad tracks above the triple underpass. That was definitely an open question already in the investigation, and Tag was an important witness to get on record about what he thought related to a possible shot from that location. Tag's response seems reasonable as he was standing right there at the underpass at the time. And if there had been a shot fired from in front of the limousine somewhere around the triple underpass, he most assuredly would have at least heard it, if not seen it. Liebler then asked another final leading question of the witness that had already become the litany of the Warren Commission legal staff throughout the witness deposition process for those who were there at that moment in the assassination. It went something like this. Do you think that it is consistent with what you heard and saw that day, that the shots could have come from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository? Mr. Tag answered, Yes. This kind of treatment was but another example where the commission's lawyers attempted to lead witnesses to accept their narrative and then completely ignored the consistent and original testimony of so many witnesses. Witnesses who said that some gun or something was fired from the direction of the picket fence and grassy knoll area. 
There was one more interesting exchange in James Tagg's testimony that day, which I think is relevant. Liebler asked Tagg if there wasn't, in fact, a considerable echo in that area. Tagg emphatically answered back that there was no echo from where he stood. And he went on to say that he had been asked this question before, and again, there was no echo. This statement about an echo is important. Many people have speculated that Dealey Plaza, with its unique juxtaposition of being an open area, surrounded at least in part by a substantial number of semi-tall buildings, would naturally be the source of an echo. That echo, in turn, would contribute, potentially, to confusion around the exact number of shots that were taken that day. The idea being that a person's senses might interpret an acoustic echo as an additional shot, rather than a real shot actually having occurred. Obviously, Tag was standing in one very unique vantage point, and that vantage point would not necessarily produce the same acoustic characteristics as other places in the plaza. But this was one important place and one very explicit statement that there was no echo whatsoever. At least not that he could hear. You, the jury, can at least check one thing off your list. It's not rocket science to know that eyewitness testimony is only as good as the person giving it. It certainly has its limitations. This whole case is a great example of where so many people saw the same thing and describe it in different ways. That's why in my own travels, for years, I have had an inclination to go back to the original source documents of this case, particularly sworn testimony, and in the case of video, to review the video of what was recorded as close to the time and moment of the assassination as is available. Audio in the same way. Even Tag is a good example of how subsequent lapse of time and the assassination industry itself have modified, if ever so slightly, the recollection of facts. I believe Tag was a good man that pretty much spent the rest of his life living honestly in Dallas. Like so many, he's already passed. He died in 2013. But before he did, he became a student of the assassination story, and he wrote several books on the topic. He was undoubtedly influenced and aided by his long friendship with respected assassination researcher Harold Weisberg. In his later years, his last book on the assassination was over 650 pages long, and it was conspiratorial in theme. Whether he liked it or not, he himself had become a fascinating part of the JFK assassination history. Over the years, he managed one of the larger car dealerships in Dallas. Generally, he was not a seeker of limelight, like many of the witnesses in the case eventually came to be. My experience is that there is always a little bit of editorial right that witnesses have taken with their own books, and that seems to have been a much wider latitude as the years went by. In Tagg's original testimony given to the Warren Commission in June 1964, it was not crystal clear in terms of the sound that the gun made. In fact, the way I just described it to you is what came from Tagg's original sworn testimony given to the Warren Commission. He said it did not sound like a rifle, 
and basically that it sounded more canon-like. That is, the first shot. By the time he wrote his last book, it was described as the clear and distinct sound of a rifle shot. Maybe, over time and in his own mind, he reconciled all that he had heard about that day and came to that conclusion. Maybe not. One thing is for sure. Seeking the truth requires a curious mix of fresh minds applied to the original and unbending facts. The stories, told in their original form, are the glue that binds together the real facts, including all the physical evidence, which tends not to lie, by the way. In the JFK assassination, all of it still seems to be facts which are stranger and more interesting than fiction. Thank you for listening to Episode 16 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.